So it was the day after Thanksgiving, uh, just this past, a couple days ago, and uh, we went to my older uh, stepbrother's house, and our cousin prepared this incredible mouth-watering brisket. Like, if, to give you some ideas, for some, some of you guys who don't do barbecue, he spent 13 hours letting it prepare. And so it's that kind of, you know, that mouth-watering, the kind that melts in your mouth, the kind that's been soaking in seasoning. Uh, even now, I can feel my mouth watering with it. And so, you know, part of me is just like, for Thanksgiving, I am so thankful for this cousin's generosity. I am looking forward with all my heart to enjoy this with my family. Now, part of Melissa and I, what we're trying to do is trying to teach our kids also to enjoy good food. So uh, we sat the kids also at the table. Uh, my littlest one, some of you know my littlest one is three years old. Uh, he was sitting next to me. He got to have some brisket too. And, um, and so you can imagine my incredible dismay when sitting next to Chili, he turns, looks me in the face, Daddy, achoo, and sneezes entirely all over my brisket. I'm still a little bit traumatized by it. Now, I have to just tell you, uh, since we are a come-as-you-are church confess, confessing church, I still ate it. I ate all of it. I didn't appreciate it as much, but I ate it. And I think about that a lot because it's easy for me, and hope maybe you as well, to be thankful when there's all this goodness in front of you, when you're looking forward to enjoying the things of life. And then life decides to toss you a grenade, explode your brisket with its beautiful mucusy goodness. And I think a lot about in our lives that that's normally the case, that there's a lot of things that we're told we're supposed to be thankful for, we're supposed to be thankful for our lives, but you get a grenade in your life that blows up and there's no quick fix to it, to your conflict, to your pain, maybe even your loss this past year. There's times that we turn to God and it's not like, you know, some religions that promise you of some magical fix. There's times that you have to live with it. So how can you possibly be thankful? So I want to encourage you this morning that perhaps there's some hope and help from the Word of God. If you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, there are Bibles in front of you, in the, under, under the seats, if you want. If you don't own a Bible, uh, these are actually our free gift Bibles. You can take that one home with you. If you don't feel like looking at a Bible, take it home anyways. But uh, you can look at the, the big screen if you don't know. I, if you're like me, when I first became a Christian, it's kind of like people saying all these books of the Bible, I have no idea where to look, so I would just kind of flip it open to a random page and pretend I'm reading along. You don't have to do that. But just take it home with you. Uh, it'll be up on the big screen. And to give you some background about what's happening in the book of Isaiah, this is about 700 years before the coming of Jesus. And uh, Israel and Judah, they've split into two nations. They, they've had civil war. And to fend off the encroaching threat of the Assyrian Empire, the Israelites, they turn to their plans and their politicians instead of turning to God. And it doesn't go very well for them. For those of you know, who are history buffs, they are conquered. But despite their faithlessness, God is faithful. He promises a sign in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that a child will be given whose name will be called Emmanuel. And I want you to remember that name because it's very significant. It's a Hebrew word. That name means God with us. 
And this man that's going to come is a promised Savior, an everlasting King, and it's assurance that even in their times of trouble and ours, that God is still with us, no matter what pain you've gone through. So I'm going to read from chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse, for those of you who don't know, is uh, the father of King David. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That means reverence and worship. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Woo-hoo, getting a little hot in there. Uh, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So let's stop right there. Uh, let me simplify what's happening for you. After Assyria conquers the northern kingdom of Israel, the future of God's people, King David's family tree, seems like it's cut off. It's dying. It is a dead stump. And they have no one to blame but themselves because they had turned away from the protection, provision, and presence of God. And as a result, because of that, like them, we have a tendency also to put our faith in ourselves, in our circumstances, in our schemes instead of God. And so a lot of times we also reap the consequences of life apart from God. But also like them, Our story is not over yet. There is hope. And so here in verse 1, from the ashes, this new life, this new shoot, this new king arises whose name is Emmanuel. And he's not just the king of a little nation in the Middle East, but says that he is the king over the world, over all the nations, that he's going to bring forth fruitfulness and life from this dead stump, this dead end. Now, If you're like me, and you keep up a lot with current events, many politicians with power make promises that they do not keep because they're too far removed from the average person. And so I would say that they don't really understand our problems, and even if they did, they don't really care enough about you as an individual to help. But what we see here in verses 2 and 3 is that this Messiah King, he's filled with God's Spirit. That means that he possesses God's wisdom. He's giving God's guidance. He's making godly decisions so he understands our situation. There's nothing that you and I are going through, no matter how painful, no matter how sinful, that he doesn't understand. And then verses 3 to 5, it also says that he is filled with God's righteousness. That means that when he looks at these situations, talks about him uh, not being fooled by people of influence or affluence or appearance, that instead he will deliver perfect justice against oppressors, against wickedness, but he'll also deliver perfect compassion to those who are humble and needy. And one of the things that, for those of you who've been in church for a while know, is that all these many prophecies that happen throughout Isaiah are fulfilled in the Emmanuel that comes 700 years later in Jesus Christ. And so the big idea this morning, when you, if you don't remember anything else, is that 
when the circumstances of today are too painful, that you and I can still be thankful for the coming of a good king in Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> you see, the Israelites were looking forward to his coming and we to his return, but both can give thanks for this messianic king no matter what we are going through because of who he is. This passage tells us that he understands us. He's good. He's caring. He is God with us who has not abandoned us. So we get to worship and be thankful for this king, the Savior God, for who he is. And for the rest of the passage, it's going to tell us we can be thankful for what he does. So look at verse 6 with me. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. Take note of that. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing sh child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. So what's happening here is because uh, sin has entered mankind at the beginning, all people everywhere experience conflict in this world. Whether it's woundedness by the sinfulness and selfishness in relationships, or by oppressive people in our lives, or predatory nations and societies. There's times that the heartache and hurt will make us question, God, are you there? When we look at atrocities happening around the world, in other countries, in the Ukraine. God, are you there? God, do you care? And his response in verses 6 through 8 is that there is coming a day that there will no longer be any hostility between people. Like predators and prey coexisting peacefully, that individuals, societies, even former enemies will all be at peace with one another. Why? because it says a little child shall lead them. They're talking about when this Emmanuel child comes, who is prophesied in chapter 7, verse 14, that his righteous reign will overcome all the enmity around the world, that King Jesus will turn our conflicts into his peace. That's the next slide. Now, you should be asking how, because we think about all the human attempts at world peace and how they've failed throughout centuries, millennia. Or, uh, sometimes for some of us, even in our own homes, that there are marital or family conflicts with parents and kids that no amount of holy water extinguishes or quenches. And so what we see here is that there's coming a day, in verse 9, when everyone everywhere will know that King Jesus is the God with us. You see, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 talks about a time when all will know him and who trust him, who worship him, that this prince of peace will come and reveal himself to all of creation and he will bring peace to all the broken relationships between one another and even with creation itself. So that instead of you and I being controlled by our baggage and our blind spots, our sinfulness, because that happens every time I talk to couples or people in conflict, it's always maximizing what the other person did wrong, minimizing what I've done wrong, and not being able to see that. That's your blind spots. 
But instead, our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ means that we'll be washed clean with perfect love, perfect understanding, perfect acceptance, perfect forgiveness of Christ for one another. And, now here, I want you to hear this part. It's not just something that can only happen someday when Jesus returns. But because Jesus has already come, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now in us today. And because of that, you and I can live out later on in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 the love and the peace of Christ in our marriages, in our relationship with our parents and our children, in our workplace, in every relationship, we can begin experiencing that kind of Jesus' reign to bring us peace in our relationships. Some of you know Pastor, uh, have heard of Pastor Rick and his wife Kay Warren. They are one of the most publicly well-known couples in ministry. And incidentally, uh, even though they're so well-known, you would think that they would be role models for people to follow. Uh, his wife Kay admits that actually their marriage went through what she would describe as descending into marital hell. And I, she says, and I quote, we didn't even make it to the end of our honeymoon before we knew, I knew that our relationship was in serious trouble. We had been warned about five potential areas of conflict that all couples have to deal with, and we jumped into all five immediately. Sex, communication, arguments over money, children, in-laws. And then we argued about our arguments, and we just kept layering resentment on top of resentment. And so you can see that we didn't have a Hallmark card marriage, but instead through blood and sweat and tears in the trenches with Jesus, our marriage was forged and sustained. I want you to hear this. It was only by the presence of Jesus that we were able to build our relationship, that we were able to seek marriage counseling again and again and again. By the presence of Jesus only were we, were we able to allow our small group and our family into our struggles to determine one more time to say, let's start over. Please forgive me. I was wrong. Or I forgive you. It was only by the presence of Jesus that we were able to choose to admit that my way may not be the only way to see the world and to try to imagine what it's like on the other side. And it was only by the presence of Jesus that we were able to choose to focus on what was good and right and honorable inside my husband instead of what drives me crazy about him. It's only by the presence of Jesus that I was able to choose to turn my attraction towards another man into attraction for my husband. And it's only by the presence of Jesus that I was able to crack open myself open by this catastrophic grief and share it with my spouse when we are so different. For those of you who don't know, uh, one of their adult children committed suicide. How do we get past our sinfulness, our selfishness, our resentments? We're only able to do the hard work of reconciliation through the wisdom, the power, the presence, and the goodness of Jesus. Some of you have come this morning, and you need peace. You need healing because you're in a painful conflict with someone. You've experienced a broken relationship. You've been hurt by cruel people. But because He's good, because He's God, He came as a Savior, and He's coming again, then we can turn to this Prince of Peace today, who ultimately turns our conflicts into his peace in this life or in the one to come. 
okay, you're talking about relational stuff that if the person's still here, you know, we could probably fix it or there's a possibility of fixing it. But what if my issue that I come here with this morning isn't about relationships? What if it's too late to fix this life? What if the damage is already done? Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnants that remain of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, uh, from, uh, where's my, my vision is terrible, from Parthos, from Pathos, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, imagine a delta, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria. Remember, this is our big threat that they're about to, they haven't yet experienced this yet, but Assyria is coming for them. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is a really heavy passage. We're not going to get into all the details. You have questions, you can ask me later, but let's simplify it a little bit this morning. There's times that you and I need more than peace in our conflicts. Instead of having peace for a fight, we're already defeated. Life has already taken so much from us. We need justice, maybe from a sovereign one. We need redemption from a saving one. Now, for the Israelites, by walking away from God, Israel, who had once been freed from slavery, are exiled back into captivity. So I want you to imagine being one of them. Imagine being this defeated, displaced people. Everywhere that was familiar to you is now far. Everyone that you love is now gone. And you're subsisting on the margins of Assyrian society. There is nothing left for you to fix because you have nothing left. Life as you know it is over. And I wonder how many of you have ever been in that place. Now I want you to imagine that there is someone standing on a hill, raising a flag, and it's your flag, your homeland's flag, and they're calling you home. And at first you stand there kind of in disbelief, but then you see other people, others from your tribe that you didn't know were around you still running towards him. And so you pick up your pace because rescue has come for you. And so in verses 10 through 13, God promises there's coming a day that King Jesus will raise his banner for all the world to see. It is a sign that his glorious reign has come, beckoning all his people who are battered, who are broken, who've lost their jobs, lost their families, lost their homes, lost their hope to come to him and find there is redemption in our pain. There is rest for our souls. Because what King Jesus does is he will turn our devastation into his restoration. Now, I don't want you to, you to get me wrong because 
Sometimes people think that means God's just going to give me back everything that I lost. What, what this doesn't mean is God doesn't return everything that we've lost in this life. Instead, he replaces it with something better, which is more of him. He gives you his home, his family, his justice, even his joy that you experience with him, not just for a moment, but forever. And in verses 14 through 16, he says that just as I parted the Red Sea to free the Israelites from slavery and death in Egypt, nothing's going to stand in my way. Nothing's going to stand between him and us. That he's going to clear a safe path through the flood of obstacles and oppressors to save and lead his people home to him. Do you know that kind of hope for your future? Retired U.S. Marine Corps uh, General Charles Krulak used to share this, a room with another officer named John Listerman, who was a Christian. He says, I knew he was a Christian, but it, didn't mean, it meant nothing to me other than, oh, he's kind of a nice guy. But when they joined the same battalion that was sent overseas to Vietnam, he saw another side of this man. He was a tremendous leader. His people loved him. He was committed to his troops, and they were committed to him. He was a Marine's Marine. And when they were on patrol together December morning, 1965, they ran into an ambush. And this Christian man, John, he took a 50 caliber round, bursting his kneecap. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about weapons or guns, like me, uh, that is a huge bullet. And the crack was so loud, it sounded like an explosion, and it threw him actually into the air. Lifted the man off his feet. That's how big of a bullet that is. And as he's dropping from the air, a second round hit him right below his heart and exited his side. He landed about 30 meters away from Charles with his leg blown clean off. One round. So Charles crawled over to him, but before he could say anything, trying to comfort his friend, John turns his head towards him. Are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. Are you, you know, uh, are my men safe? Yes, John, your people are okay. And then John, the only thing he could move at that time was his head. He turned his head back upwards towards the sky and repeated over and over, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for caring for my people. Thank you for caring for me. Knowing that no matter what he had lost, he will be restored. He has eternal security that what he will receive from Jesus is better than anything he's lost in this life. Now for Charles, he was dumbfounded to see his friend giving thanks to God in the midst of this terrible circumstance with half his legs blown off. But he remembers this man and the incredible thankfulness he had towards Jesus and it would lead him to later commit his own life to Jesus because he discovered that even in life's pain, there is power in the good news of a Savior who raises a banner, who calls us home, who promises to make us whole. Some of you have taken explosive hits. You're experiencing devastation that nobody can give back to you. You've lost your health. You've lost your wealth. You've lost a loved one. You've lost your hope. And like Israel at times, you may feel like an exile too, wounded, 
cut off alone. You need to know that God has not abandoned you. He is God who is still with us. And you can turn to Jesus to give you justice as a good judge and to give you mercy as a gracious redeemer and to give you hope as a beautiful Savior. The day is coming when Jesus promises in Revelations chapter 21, verse 4, that he will wipe away every tear, that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, that the former things shall pass for all who humble themselves to worship and trust and depend on Jesus for help and hope. That all the heavens and all the earth and all who follow Jesus will be renewed and restored. You have hope. I know your loss hurts, but there is a God who will restore. Okay? Seems like God addresses all of our hurts relationally, which is some of our biggest heartaches. He talks about our devastation when we are alone and cut off and in pain and that he wants to help But what if, and I know if you're like me, you think along these lines too, what if though the pain is my own fault? What if I'm the one, you know, will God help me if I'm the one who made bad choices, poor choices, and have wreaked destruction in my own life? Chapter 12, verse 1. is a continuing long manuscript. You will say in that day, still talking about the day of the coming of Emmanuel, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, for he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. You see, when when Jesus returns, this promised Savior King, this Emmanuel, this God with us, he brings peace, he rebuilds and renews all things. As we see him and experience him, we give thanks, not for giving us good things because we deserved it, but for giving us unearned grace when we didn't. You see, in verses 1 to 3, God's people are singing that he's my strength, he's my song, because I sinned, and then I suffered, but then now I'm saved. That God saved me from myself, from my sinfulness, from my self-destructiveness, so now I am joyful and thankful. And in verses 4 through 6, now let everyone, I want to let everyone else know with singing and shouts of praise what he has done for me. And I'm inviting others to call on his name regardless of whatever difficulty or tragedy that you face because he has not abandoned you, just like he hasn't forgotten about me. Emmanuel means that God is still with us, that he is still for us. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there's no greater evidence of his tremendous love than by grace he cleanses us, forgives us, transforms us who are former enemies into his friends, into his family, as King Jesus turns our sinfulness into thankfulness. It's not accomplished 
by him demanding that we fulfill all the right religious rules or by paying the right price because he does it for himself. He does it for you himself through the cross, and that's good news, and so we're thankful. To break a habit of constant swearing, a Christian man named Paul started meeting with another man from his church, and they set up an aggressive plan for holiness. Each Sunday before church would start, Paul would report to his friend William how many times he had cussed during the week. And then, for every instance, he would put $5 in the offering for each incident. First week, cost him a hundred bucks. After a few more weeks, fluctuated a little bit up and down, but actually there was kind of an upward trajectory. He didn't, he, he wasn't having the success he wanted and he was losing a lot of hard earned money. So after about the fourth week, his accountability partner, William, told Paul, I am going to change the deal. But he wouldn't tell Paul how. All he said to him is, trust me, it's going to cost you both less and more. And so the next Sunday before church, Paul was looking down. He had obviously failed again that week. William comes and puts his hand on his shoulder. Your sin still has a cost, but for you, it's going to be free. What I want you to do is just fill in a number. So he took out this check, and he it had already been made out to the church. It was already dated and signed by William, and only the amount was blank. Paul, this cost both less and more. It's called grace. And like I said, it's still gonna, sin still has a cost, but it's going to be free for you. So just fill in this number, and next week, there's going to be more grace for you. The first week, Paul cost William $55. Second week, only $20. There was no third week. And these were two men who really trust each other, who were very brutally honest with one another. So it wasn't him trying to fudge the numbers. You see, it cost Paul less in cash, but it cost Paul more in humility to receive grace from someone else paying the cost. And that tremendous, tearful, wonderful, amazing grace started to transform his heart and his sinfulness to freedom and thankfulness. And like Israel, like Paul, this Paul, perhaps the pain in your life that you experience is self-inflicted. Perhaps you wrapped your life around a telephone pole through poor choices or a moment of weakness. And no matter how good or moral you think you are, you are an enemy of God through sin. But by faith in Jesus, the one who is God with us, God was, is now a former enemy and now your comfort and salvation. And that is good news. For those of you who came to our Thanksgiving celebration last Saturday, I mentioned to you, do you know the difference between being grateful and being thankful? You can feel grateful on the inside. I feel grateful all the time. I don't say anything or do anything with it. I just feel grateful. I feel good. But when the Bible calls us to be thankful, there is an outward expression of coming before God in humility, in repentance, with singing, with shouts of praise for who Emmanuel is and for what he has done for us. And so my challenge for you is come to the cross. If you're feeling vile, feeling like a failure, feeling broken, and come and 
come before the cross in humility and receive grace. But also, don't just feel grateful. Be thankful. That at the cross, Jesus wrote this blank check and he's continuing to pay for us. No matter how many times we've failed, grace has already come in Jesus. And that is good news. That as we're comforted by his acceptance and his forgiveness and his grace, may we sing, may we shout for praise, may we give thanks today. Now there's times today is too heavy and it's hard to feel thankful. But God reminds us there's a better tomorrow coming. And that promise starts here, that King Jesus has come, and he's coming again. He's our good king. He's a caring savior. He is God with us. He who came as a man invites us to come as we are so that he can carry all of our sinfulness and our brokenness to a cross and then rose from the dead so that we will rise with him into something new, something better. And so may you experience the great hope of thankfulness today. I will pray. We're going to sing. Then we're going to celebrate God's goodness even more by hearing stories from those who were baptized this morning and as they repented and turned towards Jesus. And we can experience his peace and restoration. And we're going to give thanks together because Emmanuel has come. God is still with us. Heavenly Father, we give thanks this Thanksgiving season as we are reminded Now, being thankful isn't a state of our circumstances. That circumstances don't get to define our view of who Jesus is. But who Jesus is as Emmanuel, God with us, Savior, Lord, defines how we view our circumstances. And so, God, we come to you and bring our brokenness. Some of us have broken hearts from painful relationships past and present. Some of us have broken lives. We've been wounded by loss and suffering that we cannot fix. And all of us have been wounded by broken spirits. That we are all sinful. That none of us Approaches the goodness and glory of Jesus. We cannot climb the ladder up to heaven and reach up to you. But praise be to you that you reached down to us, that you proclaimed, I will send an Emmanuel, my son, God, to be with us. And so we gratefully receive his grace. We sing praises to his name in Jesus' name.